Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. If you were to flip open your Bible, set it on a table in front of you, like maybe you did this morning for a quiet time, how long would you have to read before you encounter the Holy Spirit in the text? Very long? Second verse. Technically the first verse, God and the Holy Spirit's included, but an explicit, yeah, that's correct. And then an explicit mention of the Spirit comes in the second verse. The third sentence in our English, the second verse of the Bible already has the Holy Spirit. Before we've even encountered, this, encountered Jesus, the Son of God, explicitly, we encounter the Holy Spirit. If you have that in front of you, you can see that it reads, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Like Deb pointed out, in the first verse, we had been introduced to God. We'd been shown that He's the Creator. And then, in the second verse, we'd been introduced to our earth in a primordial sense, when it was just chaotic waters. That's all you know by the time you get to the Holy Spirit in the Bible, there in the third verse, the Spirit appears, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of those chaotic waters that were formless and without form and were void or empty. It is surprising because, do you know how many times you encounter the Holy Spirit explicitly after this verse in Genesis? Only two times. <laughs> One of those times is at the time of the flood where God says, My spirit shall not abide with man forever because he is flesh. Shortens the length of his lifespan to 120 years on average at that time. And then the next one is not until way later in the 40s of the chapters of Genesis when you find Joseph. And Pharaoh says, Where else can we find someone in whom is the spirit of God? And we're not even sure what Pharaoh meant by that, what his level of understanding was. But those are the only three mentions of the Spirit in Genesis. It is remarkable that the very first one is right there at the beginning. In fact, if you take the entire Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Holy Spirit is only explicitly mentioned 13 total times. And yet God wanted him mentioned first right at the beginning about as close to the beginning as you can. What's also interesting there in Genesis is it doesn't really tell us much about what he's doing there. He's just there hovering. That's what it says. He was hovering, kind of like a bird hovers over its nest. And then you don't encounter him again explicitly in the whole creation narrative. Although we don't know what he's doing, the Bible wants you to know that when creation happened, the Holy Spirit was there. Why does the Bible want you to know that? Well, the answer to that is the purpose of this whole lesson today. We are titling this lesson today, Creator Spirit. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in creation? Obviously, He has some role because He's right there. How's He connected to creation itself? We can't say He's uninvolved. At the very least, He's hovering. But why is that told to us? Of all the lessons we're going to be doing in this class, all the ones following that will have to do with the different roles of the Holy Spirit, this is the one that has the fewest clear 
passages to support it. And yet it's one that theologians really through all time have agreed is one role of the Holy Spirit. We just have to work harder at understanding fewer passages and some of them are not the clearest passages. So I hope you came ready to think because we're really going to have to think. But I do want to point out just at the outset because, because that's true. I want to point out at the outset, you can't just take what's stated in verse 3 that he was hovering over the waters and throw it away. You can't just say, well, it's so small there, it doesn't matter. Jesus, when he used scripture, said scripture cannot be broken and sometimes made arguments on the basis of a single word. He called them gods to whom the word of God came. It was all based on that word gods, if you remember that. So what we find at the beginning of Genesis, which you've probably read many, many times over, every New Year's resolution when you start up the new Bible reading plan, even if you don't get far, surely you get to the third verse, the second verse, and you have read that the Holy Spirit was present at creation. But have you ever thought, why? Why is that told to us? What is he doing at creation? What is his role in creation? The argument of this class is going to be that specifically the person of the Spirit is presented as here's the word for you, a new word for your vocabulary. This is fun, new word for your vocabulary. Vivifying, vivifying, meaning make alive. The Holy Spirit's role in almost everything that he does is to vivify or to give life. Hence the name of this class, based on the Nicene Creed, is giver of life. And when we come to creation, you see that as well, that he uniquely is giving life. We're going to see that in all the works of the Spirit. Really what we're going to talk about today is how the Spirit gives life in a physical sense. Not just life in your heart spiritually. That's what we think of the Holy Spirit doing and that's right. But the Bible also presents the Spirit as giving life in the physical realm. Hence his hovering at the very beginning. So let's see that. We're going to break the lesson up in two parts today. The first thing we're going to talk about is the Holy Spirit's role in the original creation itself. The second thing we're going to talk about after that is the Holy Spirit's role in another kind of creation you might not think of as creation, but it is, and that is in the resurrection, which is the re-giving of life once we've died. The Holy Spirit's involved in that. So let's just start with the original creation. And if you just begin by trying to imagine that moment in Genesis 1, it's, prevented, it's presented to you as a narrative, as a story. And if we try to imagine that moment, we're told that there's the world that God has created, the heavens and the earth. It's created. But the very first thing we're told about our world is not that it's beautiful and teeming with life. It's not. Actually, it's entirely dead. In fact, the two words that are used in the Hebrew are poetic, tohu and vohu. Without form and void or empty, those are the descriptors of the original creation that God made. And in the ancient Near East, at that time, there were a lot of mythologies that had been developed that saw creation as arising out of this conflict between sort of deities or semi-deities together. That's not what's being presented here. But what is interesting is that creation arises by God's doing and yet, at the very beginning, when he first makes heaven and earth, it's formless and void. God created the heavens and the earth over the course, really, of seven days, six days and a day of rest. He could have done it in one millisecond or less. 
but he decided it would be a process. Sometimes we forget the very beginning, the first part of the process is that he created a formless and void sort of raw materials of creation. That happens even before he says, let there be light. And that's what we encounter at the beginning of Genesis. And if we were to imagine ourselves there, look, I don't know what that was like. It tells us there were waters, and we know that later he's going to gather the waters together and make the dry land appear. Sort of seems like the dry land, it's created, but it's submerged under this vast abyss of water. Everywhere you look is simply water that's considered formless and void. And I don't know, maybe this is just creativity speaking, but you think, what was it like? Was it completely frozen? There was no sun at the time. So I don't imagine there was warmth, although what do I know? We're speaking mysteries. But maybe it was just a complete icy frozenness everywhere. If we're thinking formless, was that that it was frozen in such a way that there were jagged edges everywhere you look like some kind of dystopia? Or maybe again, since there was no wind to blow the water, even if we're to imagine that before it froze, it's just maybe completely flat everywhere you look. One frozen sleet of ice in every direction, and that's the entire world. All the materials are there, but it's complete chaos. Really, when I read the story, and I don't have any reason for this, but it's just how I've always read the story, I don't think of it as frozen. I just think of it almost as like the worst storm a sailor's ever experienced times 10. Like there's lightning, which wouldn't have happened, but there's lightning and there's thunder and the waves are raging, massive waves. It's utter darkness. There's no light. That is the original creation. And you could look in every direction. You wouldn't find any conscious living being anywhere. With one exception. If you were to look up, the Holy Spirit is hovering over this mass of chaos. He, at that point, is the only life on the planet. He is the life, and as we'll see, the life giver, but there's no life anywhere else. There's no form anywhere else. It's all chaos, but when you look to him, he's God, and the Holy Spirit, as God, hovering over that chaotic mass is everything that mass is not. He himself is an orderly God, reasonable, orderly, purposeful. He himself is full of life, so full of life, it's overflowed into a creation that will have life. He is the life giver. So all the life that exists at that point is contained in him as he hovers over what is completely dead, empty, cold, sterile. There's nothing there. That is the original creation. That's what we find there in verse 2 of Genesis 1. Now, we know that creation was... Here's a Latin term that many of you know. If you don't, it's an easy one. You can know it. Ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. Ex means out of. Nihilo, like nihilists. There will be nothing someday. Nihilists. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. We know that creation was out of nothing. And Hebrews 11 confirms that. It says, we believe by faith that God created everything out of nothing. So we're not saying that God, the Holy Spirit, came and, wow, he just discovered this mass of water that he's going to now shape. No. God created that mass, that formless, void mass of water, maybe with the land submerged. God created that ex nihilo. And even as the creation days go on, there will be more creations ex nihilo. 
There's going to be times where by God's divine fiat, we call it, just by his command, just by his speaking it, let there be light. He didn't take something and fashion it into light. He simply said, let there be light, and there was no light, and then there was light. It was an instantaneous, immediate sort of a creation that took place. It's like what we find in verse 3. But what is interesting as we think of the Spirit being present there is that not all of the creation during the creation week was like that. There were almost, you could say, two kinds of creation happening, very related. The one was the verse 3, let there be something that's simply not there. It's unsupported. There's nothing behind it. God just makes it. Ex nihilo. But there is also a sort of creation happening that's dependent upon something God already made. Still, what he made was ex nihilo. But then when he makes something else, it depends on or grows out of. You maybe have seen this. Let me give you an example. Verse 11. Let the earth sprout vegetation. The earth that by that point God had raised up from its submerged state. God is saying, let the earth that's already there that I've created, let it sprout things that are alive. Vegetation. Plant life. I think, again, we're working with minimal passages here, but it's very reasonable for us to think that spirit hovering over the world was particularly active in something like that, where here you have the earth just dead, just mineral, and out comes, at least here, plant life. And it's based on something already there, but it's being brought to perfection. It's being vivified. Do you want another word? Can you take another word? It's being fructified. Is that fun? That's a fun word. You should know that one. Fructified, made fruitful. It's being made fruitful. The Spirit is vivifying, fructifying, and notice, these are all things the Holy Spirit does in us spiritually. So you see a parallel, but we're just talking physically, but you can see it spiritually. Greg Allison, Dr. Greg Allison, he's a professor at Southern Seminary that I formerly had. He gives this comment. Sorry, his, uh, his wording is like a professor, okay? So just we'll work through it. The difference in expression is striking. Let there be, like let there be light, so God made. That's on the one hand. And let the earth produce the earth produced. Focusing on that second type of expression, let the earth bring forth. One could consign the earth's ability to produce in accordance with the divine command. One could say that the world brings forth because of some imminent force within nature itself. However, the alternative is to assign the earth's ability to produce to the creative activity of the Holy Spirit. As introduced in verse 2, the Spirit of God is carrying out His intention to form and fill the earth as it is being created. I think that's very reasonable given everything else we know about the Holy Spirit, that He's always presented as giving life. Now, again, you're good Bereans and you're saying, is that supported by the text? All right, let me give you one other part of the creation narrative that somewhat supports this idea that the Spirit is present in creation, especially to give life. That's if you flip over to Genesis 2, verse 7. 
In Genesis 2-7, we are near the end of the creation week on day six. And the pinnacle of all God's creation is us. It's Adam, first man. And God fashions Adam out of dirt. And then we read in verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Somewhat like we saw in creation, where plants came forth, God first creates the earth, and then he makes it teem with life. God first creates the waters, and then he makes living creatures in the waters. God first creates the heavens or the skies, and then he creates the birds, the living creatures, the winged creatures who fly through the skies. So there's this fashioning of what's formless and void and lifeless and then there's a bringing to perfection a fructifying a vivifying that takes place that's kind of how the creation narrative itself is set up and really if you ever care to look at it the first three days are really preparing the scenery and then the next three days are putting living creatures and living things into the scenery you can go look at that on your own sometime and notice that but that's the same thing he does with mankind he could just, boom, there we are alive, but instead he first fashions an unliving man. Adam is not alive. Didn't have to do it that way. It's instructive for us. Here's man with no life. How is he going to get life? How is he going to be vivified? And God wants us to see that he's vivified how? Specifically, by the Lord God breathing into his nostrils the breath of of life. Now, you are all good students of the Bible, and we don't have time to go into this, but if you think of God, maybe God incarnate, at any point breathing upon other people, did that ever happen? Did he ever breathe upon people? Did Jesus in his earthly life ever breathe upon people? At the end of his ministry, after his resurrection, that strange passage that you always wondered about, what in the world? There's Jesus with his disciples, and he whew, says he breathed on them. And what does he say? Does anyone know? Receive the Holy Spirit. Now that's foreign to us, because we have different words for breath, spirit, and wind in English. But in the Hebrew and Greek, there's at least one term that means all three of those things. And that doesn't mean, like we've talked about, that the Holy Spirit is actually breath, that you're breathing. You're not breathing the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's actually wind. And yet Jesus and all the Bible will use this almost as a metaphor. It will compare the Holy Spirit to breath and wind because they're invisible. There are a lot of parallels. You see the effects, but you don't see them. I think that's what God's doing in Genesis 2. There he forms man, and he could have just made him alive any way he wanted, but specifically he wants to breathe into him the breath of life. Now, the Hebrew word used for breath there is not the typical word used for spirit in Holy Spirit. I grant it. The word used here is nephesh. It is the nephesh of life. The nephesh of life. However, and, and the word used for the Holy Spirit is always ruach. It's a ruach. You say, aha, it's nephesh, it's not ruach. Well, 
in both Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 9, when God in the flood speaks of wiping out all that had in them the breath of life, it is the ruach of life. And it's referring to the same thing we find right here. So there is certainly a sort of play on words. The point is God wants you to see life, like here the breath of life, as connected to the Holy Spirit. And you see that all throughout Scripture. If you take that in your mind and read the Bible, you'll see it over and over. When we encounter the Holy Spirit, He's vivifying and fructifying. It's like what He does. And I think that's part of the point of Genesis 2, that when God breathes in man the breath of life, we're supposed to see that that giving of life is happening through the Holy Spirit, that He's uniquely the one who gives life. Now, other passages, again, maybe you're not convinced, and that's fine. Like I said, there's slender passages here. But let me give you a few others from the Old Testament that support it. Here's Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. John 1, 1, the word was Jesus. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth all their host. We're used to the idea that God made the world through his word, which in a literal sense is because he spoke, but we know there's more significance to that than just that he spoke because John picks that up and says, hey, the word is Jesus. So when God spoke creation into existence, he really did, but when he did that, it was to demonstrate that he was creating through Jesus Christ. Psalm 33, 6 says, hey, there's another metaphor at play here. Because when you speak a word, you can't do it without breathing out the word that you speak. And God's breath is God's spirit. It's a picture, okay? Don't take it too literally there, but it's a picture. And so Psalm 33, 6, you see this breathing out, the Holy Spirit involved in creation. Maybe a clearer picture is given by... And by the way, that word for breath there is ruach. Maybe a clearer picture is given by young Elihu. Remember him at the end of the book of Job where he finally gets fed up with the other three guys and stands up and says, hey, I've got to say something. And he says something's really true and some you're not sure about. Well, one of the things he says really true is this. The spirit, the ruach, the spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the almighty gives me life. You see that? I didn't make that up. Is that right there? See how that lines with everything we're saying? Okay. This one is, oh, I didn't even put it in the bottom. I'll get that reference to you. I usually have it on the bottom, but I don't here. It's toward the end of Job, but I'll find it for you. In fact, the Bible sees the Spirit as involved not only in giving life at the time of creation, but even giving life to animals and to us today. Here is Psalm 104. When you send forth your spirit, they, referring to animals, are created and you renew the face of the ground because it's dead. You make it come back alive. Animal, plant life. And Elihu had said, your spirit gives me life. So you see the Spirit, even though there's not a ton of verses about it, whenever you encounter the Spirit, He's giving life, even to the physical creation. That's the point in those verses. 
Uh, on a practical level, there are some of you here I know who are lovers of nature. And I, and I wish I shared that sentiment with you. <laughs> to me, nature is cold and cruel, but I'm trying to grow in that. But anyways, I appreciate if you have, you're a lover of nature. And there's nothing more surreal to you than standing on top of some mountain in Colorado and you have that cold, biting wind in your face and you see all the greenery, all the beauty that is before you. And that's maybe when you feel closest to God. That's when you have a great sense of where you fit in the universe. Wonderful. I would encourage you in those moments to actively be bringing to mind the fact that all the beauty you are seeing out here, the Bible wants you to see that this is the kind of beauty that the Holy Spirit produces. First, physically, because he's involved in all the life you see, but also on a spiritual level, as we'll see later. So if you ever get to thinking Christianity is dull and lifeless, actually the Holy Spirit is part of the reason we know that's not true. He literally is the giver of life, even on the physical level. All right, so that's the first point here. That's the Holy Spirit's role in creation. He specifically vivifies and fructifies. There is another way in which the Holy Spirit's involved in what we could call creation as a creator spirit. He not only vivifies in the first creation, but he's clearly involved in the new creation that's coming, that we're all looking forward to, when God fixes everything at Jesus' return. And specifically, the Holy Spirit, because he's a giver of life, is involved in our future resurrection, which makes sense, because that's literally a giving of life to what's dead. Now, this is true, first, when you think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because the resurrection of Jesus is always presented as a pattern of our resurrection. So if you want to know about your own resurrection that's to come, first look at Jesus' resurrection. He's called the first fruits of those who are asleep. So he's the first part of the harvest, and then we follow in his pattern. And when we look at Jesus' own resurrection, behold, the Holy Spirit is involved. I'm going to give you two passages now from Romans to show the Spirit's involvement in our resurrection. And the first one is, you know, if you were to open up the book of Romans, just like previously we opened Genesis and said, how long do you have to read until you find the Holy Spirit? If you open up the book of Romans, how long do you have to read until you find the Holy Spirit? Anyone know? Yes, Joe's got it. Four verses. So that's twice as long in Genesis. <laughs> but because it's Paul... It's the same sentence, <laughs> of course. It's the same sentence. The very first sentence of the book, he mentions the spirit of holiness. Here's what he says in verse 4. Paul writes, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. You see resurrection and you see spirit of holiness. I take spirit of holiness to be the Holy Spirit, just another way of saying the Holy Spirit here. Now again, this maybe is one of those verses like Genesis chapter one, verse three, two. Um, this is one of those verses where you read it and you kind of just keep reading because you go, what is he saying here? <laughs> Declared to be the son of God by his resurrection. I thought Jesus was the son of God. Well, you, you thought right. Jesus is the eternal son of God. Paul is not saying that he became the Son of God. That is a heretical view known as adoptionism. 
That is not true. Jesus always was the Son of God. And just read the Gospel of John and it's very obvious. However, what did change at the resurrection that's being referenced right here is this declaration in power that he is the Son of God. He's not becoming it, but it's a powerful declaration. He was right. He is the Son of God. And if you read John's Gospel at the end, the centurion who's overseeing Jesus' death when he dies even, says, oh, that was a Son of God. Surely the resurrection, an even more powerful display of power, declaring to all the world, it's like Peter said, God has testified to everyone everywhere that he's true, that Jesus is true by raising him from the dead. That's what happened. That's what's being said here. But what's interesting is it says, according to the spirit of holiness, he was declared to be the son of God through his resurrection. Got it? According to the spirit of holiness. This happened in keeping with the Holy Spirit. And like Genesis 1-2, he doesn't say anything more than that. And we wish he would give us a footnote or something, which didn't exist at the time. So I guess that's why we don't have one. He doesn't say anything more than that. But clearly, the Holy Spirit's involved. Just like Genesis 1-2, that's the least you can say is he's involved when the resurrection happens for Jesus. It is unusual because when you read the New Testament, most typically it is the Father who is presented as raising his Son from the dead. So Galatians that we're studying, the first verse of it says, God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Then in second place, there are sometimes passages which suggest that Jesus in a sense raised himself from the dead. So in John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So the Father raised Jesus, the Son raised himself in some sense. But here we have a very unique passage where the Spirit is portrayed as involved in Jesus being raised from the dead. And honestly, why not? <laughs> and that's the Romans passage. Romans 1.4. And why not? Because the Holy Spirit, what does he do all the time? He vivifies all the time. We see it everywhere. So of course when the resurrection happens, even if we don't have an incredibly clear passage that just says, and the Spirit raised him. This is as close as you get to that, and it's not at all surprising to us that the Spirit would be mentioned there. Because anytime there's life given, you expect the Spirit to be somewhere. Because he's the giver of life. We see the Spirit's echo when he breathes that first life into the dead Adam. And we see the Spirit's echo when life is infused, so to speak, into the second Adam, Jesus, in the tomb. So maybe the best way to think of the resurrection really is God the Father raising the Son through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. And that leads us to our final point in this class today. Jesus is raised through the Holy Spirit and his resurrection is a pattern of ours. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Holy Spirit will also be involved in us being raised from the dead. Now this is actually said very clearly in Romans, in Romans chapter 8 verse 11. And it even ties together Christ's resurrection and our own. 
Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him, that's the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, so if the Spirit of the Father who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if you're a Christian, He does. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's pretty clear. It doesn't get much more clear than that. That clearly the Father raised Jesus by the Spirit, according to the Spirit of Holiness, but the Father is also going to raise you in your coming resurrection. It's a guaranteed thing. You're going to be raised. And when the Father does that, it's going to happen through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you even right now. Now, there's some comfort in this. I hope you can see. Because when we think of a future resurrection, look, we don't want to die. We don't want to die. And death is such an unnatural thing. It's not natural. It wasn't originally in creation. Even Paul himself who says, hey, cut my head off. It's fine. Let's go be with Christ. It's better. But even Paul says it's not that we want to be unclothed. We want to be further clothed. In other words, it's not that we want to lose our physical bodies. We were never meant to do that. That's a weird thing. So some of our trepidation in the face of death is just the unnaturalness of it. But a passage like this is meant to give you some comfort because it says, listen, we're talking about something in the future you haven't experienced yet, your resurrection, and you're believing it, and you're hoping in it. It's, it might be after your death. You're hoping for it. But you can be as sure that you will be raised on the last day as you are sure that the Holy Spirit dwells in you right now. And that's something you can actually experience now. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. And then, at some point in your life, the Holy Spirit came and made you alive together with Christ. And you actually saw the effects of that in your own life. You were entirely insensitive to the things of God. The Word of God was not interesting to you. If it was, it was simply for the reason of novelty or something. And then the Holy Spirit really does something invisibly in your heart. And now you can't get enough of God's Word. And you want to be at church on Sunday to hear God's Word preached. And all your friends think you've lost your mind. What happened to you? What happened is you were dead and now you're alive. It was a miracle. And, and for many of us, if you knew us before we were alive, when we were dead dead, Say, that is a miracle <laughs> that you're alive now. The point of a passage like this is, although the future resurrection, it's an odd concept to us. It's hard to imagine. If you have already been dead and made alive one time, what's being dead and made alive a second time? It's the same Holy Spirit doing both of them. You saw him do the first one. You experienced it. All the evidences are in your life. And if you can believe the Holy Spirit has done that one time, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, he's the one who's going to be used to do that a second time. There's... Yes. Hey, you're reading my notes. Uh, Bobby mentions the Holy Spirit also as a guarantee of what is to come. That's absolutely true. We have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that the resurrection will happen. So not only do we have the confidence that the same Holy Spirit who's in us right now will resurrect us, 
But we also have a confidence because he himself is the guarantee right now. He's guaranteeing. Here I am inside you, changing you. I'm here and I'm, this, I'm the seal. I'm the guarantee that you will be resurrected. Absolutely true. If we've gone from death to life one time and it was by the Spirit, we can go from death to life a second time and it's by, through the Holy Spirit's work. And part of the comfort is simply, since it's such a foreign idea to die and resurrect, that's such a foreign idea, it can be hard to get your mind wrapped around that. But the Holy Spirit's not a foreign idea to us. We live every day with the presence of the Holy Spirit literally dwelling inside us. No one's closer to us, not even spouses, friends. No one's closer to us than the Holy Spirit. He's our most intimate, close helper and companion and counselor day after day after day. And it's like he takes us by the hand and says, hey, when you die, I'm gonna be with you, I'm gonna resurrect you. I dwell in you now and I'm gonna be with you, I'm gonna resurrect you. And we trust that he will do that because he is the giver of life. So I know that this lesson today required more of your attention and thought than most of our lessons will. But again, if you don't have a lesson like this, what are you going to do with Genesis 1-2 and Romans 1-4? <laughs> you can't cut them out like Benjamin Franklin did in his Bible. You have to keep them. Every day, the world, as the mouthpiece of Satan, is trying to trick you into thinking that you as a Christian are part of a group that is lifeless, dull, boring. Because the real life and the real energy and the real excitement is happening in Hollywood. It's happening by the influencers on Instagram. It's not your life. You're part of a group, maybe even considered a cult, where you give up everything that's fun and lively and beautiful and you just drearily make your way towards some future heaven. <laughs> But if we believe these things about the Holy Spirit, that he's the creator spirit, that is exactly the opposite of true. It's such a lie. Literally, if life is to be found anywhere, it is to be found in its most condensed form here in the body of Christ. We have dwelling within us, as we'll see in future lessons, the powerful spirit who brings life in us spiritually, but he's the same spirit who brought life, vivified, fructified the very earth. The beautiful scenery, even pleasing physical shapes that the world depends so much upon, making use of things like lust to say this is where the excitement is, everything was vivified and made alive and beautiful by the work of the Holy Spirit. And he does not dwell out there in the world in the same way that he dwells right here among us. So if you're ever tempted to think of Christianity as some boring, dull, and lifeless thing, well, certainly we Christians, by our own foibles, can make it that. But Christianity itself, because it is so filled with the work and power of the Creator Spirit, is itself the most condensed and focused form of life that you will find anywhere on this planet.